This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name's Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. And to make that easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to print and digital for just two pounds a week. For print and digital, then, what do you get? Well, you get unlimited access to our archive on the website. Plus, our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this offer and to join a growing community of avid New European readers, please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And this week on the New European Podcast, only more, 10 more sleeps till the end of Boris Johnson. But in the final days of the Tory leadership election and in the middle of an energy crisis, our next Prime Minister, Liz Truss, seems to have come out as a solar power sceptic. She's also said that GB News is less biased than BBC News and that she doesn't need an ethics advisor. Uh, she said, one of the problems we've got in this country is numerous advisors. Maybe somebody should advise her not to say such stupid stuff. Meanwhile, the loser, Rishi Sunak, says it was wrong to empower scientists during the pandemic. Just think, if he'd said all this about being against lockdowns and therefore being in favour of massively increasing the burden on the NHS with the result that even more people would have died, that might even have been crazy enough for him to win over the crazy selectorate that is the crazy Tory party's crazy membership. 
So could what's coming after Boris Johnson be even worse? We will deal with that and more moronic ministers, batshit backbenchers, piss poor pundits in our Hall of Shame section near the end of this podcast. Our interview this week takes us away from this vapid and interminable race to be the country's next terrible prime minister. It takes us to Kabul. A year on from the Taliban's return, what is life like there now for women and girls? And what happened when a female journalist returned to Afghanistan to try to find out? Coming up, Lynn O'Donnell, the author of a hugely powerful must-read piece in this week's print edition of The New European. There really is no way to equate the repression and terror of what's happening in Kabul and across Afghanistan with what's happening here in the UK right now. And there's no way either, really, to compare the struggles many people face in Britain with the struggles that the people of Ukraine are suffering. But Boris Johnson did try the other day, didn't he? Uh, he said, we're paying higher bills. UK Ukraine is paying in blood. Uh, we must endure this, he said. And these are comments that say so much about Boris Johnson and why whatever bond he managed to fashion with some of the British people uh, has long since been eroded. When Boris Johnson says we must endure this, he, he means you must endure it because Boris Johnson's a very rich man already who's about to get even richer. And because Boris Johnson can afford to pay his bills with plenty to spare, he simply can't understand that some people can't pay their bills and will have nothing to spare. And that being trapped in poverty during a time of soaring inflation and soaring fuel bills is causing soaring misery and soaring damage to the physical and mental health of hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is standing over them and telling them to clean their plates because there are people hungry in China. There's no thought behind that, is there all no empathy? I said this before and I'll say it again, one of the most telling things ever said about Boris Johnson is this. You just don't care for anything because you're spoiled. You have no care for money or anything. Who said that? That was his wife during a row that their neighbours recorded. And it's very true. And it's one of the reasons Boris Johnson was never fit to be prime minister. It's one of the reasons he was a terrible prime minister. And it's one of the reasons why the final days of his benighted reign full of holidays and parties and PR stunts while Britain suffers have been such a disgrace. But never mind. Liz Truss will be here soon. And new European podcast listeners, you're a generous bunch. You've been telling us what welcome gift you would leave in Downing Street for Liz Truss as she prepares to take office. Hundreds of these. Thank you very much. Uh, some of them here. Siri says, I would give Liz Truss a glass of water from the great British seaside. Bridget Spillane says, I would give Liz Truss a signed photo of Mick Lynch. Charlie Darling says, I would give Liz Truss her old Liberal uh, Lib Dem membership card framed plus some old Remain posters. Uh, Jean Dorber says, I would give Liz Truss a wallpaper scraper and a roll of wood chip. K.A. Simmons says, I would give Liz Truss a sorry you are not leaving card. Uh, Pritani Rebel says, a tea sock. Andy Parry says, I would give Liz Truss a speak and spell toy and tell her it's her new laptop. Elizabeth Ramona Smith says, I would give Liz Truss a subscription to the New European. Uh, John Aggie says, what would I give Liz Truss? About six months in office if she's lucky. And Charlie Edwards says, 
I would give Liz Trust the number for a short notice removal company. She won't be around very long. And finally, Sarah Wooler says she would give Liz Trust a heart transplant and a brain transplant. Following those, I reckon she would be a really good Prime Minister. Now let's bring in Lynn O'Donnell, a foreign correspondent uh, and author of a must-read piece in issue 305 of this week's New European, in which she details what happened to her when she returned to Afghanistan to write after the fall of Kabul. So, Lynn, how long did you spend in Afghanistan before the, the return of the Taliban and under what circumstances did you leave in the first place? Well, as far as I know, Steve, I'm the only foreign journalist who was in Afghanistan when the Americans invaded and pushed the Taliban out of power in 2021. That's wrong. (laughs) In 2001. And the only foreign journalist who was there also when the Taliban came back and the Americans uh, basically surrendered and left in um, 2021, but I wasn't there all that time. I um, I spent a few years as a bureau chief for a couple of the international news agencies, Agence France Press and the Associated Press, the Americans. And then I went back uh, for three months um, in 2021 to cover the, the, last, the last three months of the war effectively. And I left on the 15th of August, uh, just a couple of hours before the um, Taliban came in. And of course, it's a country that's been spent the last 50 years either bracing for conflict, in conflict, dealing with the after effects of of conflict. In that sort of 20 year period after the, 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 uh, the American invasion and before the return of the Taliban, what was life like for ordinary people in, in Kabul? What, 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 what did you see? Um, Kabul was one of the busiest places I've ever worked as a foreign correspondent. There was, you know, I was I was bureau chief for two of the big agencies, as I mentioned, and so there was always something to do. I was running huge multinational, oh, God, I keep using the wrong words, huge multimedia operations. And so we're all multimedia now, but that basically means you're running a 24-7 wire service operation. Um but within, you know, the parameters of covering the news, you're also representing a, a major um, international news organisation. And so there was always um, something to do, you know, meetings to go to, press conferences, dinners with diplomats, heads of the of the NGOs. Also, Kabul was very, um, very busy, very dynamic, very... Um, uh, on the go all the time from six o'clock in the morning until midnight. There was gridlock on the on the roads and, you know, the cafes and the restaurants were full and there was shopping and there was, you know, places to go and people to see and, and all of that. So it was, it was very dynamic. Also, it was incredibly filthy uh, because the um, civic services were just woefully inadequate. So, you know, filthy drains on both sides of the road. And um, because of the need for security and the international presence there, um, you know, huge UN compounds with thousands of UN employees for all the agencies, all of the um, embassies that were there, they were all, um, and the the, um, military 
uh, HQ as well at NATO headquarters there and lots of other outposts within and around the city, they were all surrounded by T-walls and HESCO bags. And of course, these are enormous infrastructural uh, installations that narrow the streets. Streets were cut off so that suicide bo you know, bombers in cars couldn't go down them. So everything was smashed into a much smaller space than it would be ordinarily. And so really crowded and, and dense. Um, but exciting and people had uh, in the cities had very nice lives. Out in the countryside, a totally different uh, situation. Afghanistan was always in, you know, the alongside North Korea and Somalia as the most corrupt government in the world and the poorest people in the world. So despite the enormous eye-watering amounts of money that was being poured in, uh, by taxpayers like you and I, um, it, it was going to, let's say a third of it went back to the big contracting companies that were uh, contracted to do infrastructure and health and, you know, uh, service the planes and the helicopters and all of that sort of thing. And then a lot of it was stolen. And then a lot of it would go to uh, cover the costs of, let's say, the UN. You lose 30% straight away. Um, accommodation, holidays, high salaries, uh, up-armoured cars and stuff that isn't actually trickling down to the people. I mean, the Food and Agriculture Association has been their organisation, has been in Afghanistan for more than 30 years. And yet two consecutive years of drought and the farmers can't, actually produce a crop that will, that will feed people. Um, uh, WFP, it's also been there for decades and yet is appealing for eight or nine billion US dollars in um, calendar year 2022 to feed people. And yet before the collapse, it was um, they were saying that there were 11 million people facing hunger last winter. So, you know, there's been an awful lot of um, revisionism since the Taliban took mm. over. But the fact is that the place was filthy, corrupt, poor, ina inadequately uh, managed or poorly managed. And while there was a war on, there was no strategy. Um, people like to say it was one, uh, one war uh, for uh, once a year for 19 years. So, You'd, you'd have a new general come in, take over the whole NATO operation and start again. The, the, the president was um, Ashraf Ghani, utterly hopeless, only surrounded himself with yes men. If at meetings, and I, I, I know people to whom this has happened, anybody says, mm, that's not really a very good idea, sir. They never appeared again. He only wanted people around him who told him what a genius he was because in his own mind and his own lunchtime, he's a genius. And mm. so... And so really um, a bad place to be an Afghan, no matter what your situation, unless you have access or had access to loads of money. And a lot of that money is now in bank accounts um, outside. People have enormous homes in America, in, in Europe, and they're living very well, while there is no change on the ground for most Afghans. And of course, in that kind of situation, it's unsurprising, isn't it, that some people that, that many that many Afghans would support the return of the the Taliban, and of course the Taliban were driven out, but they nearly never really went away, did they? They were driven; they were able to reorganize it in in Pakistan, and you know, then start a twenty year 
insurgency, which really then let them back into in, well, the road to, the road back to Kabul. How were they able to do that so successfully? Well, I think the dysfunction of the uh, of the Afghan government, um, the Western supported Afghan government, was probably their biggest friend. Um, mm. And I, I don't think that it's right to say, Steve, that um, uh, Afghan people supported the return of the Taliban. No, they didn't. There, there were um, uh, opinion polls done across the country of all demographics everywhere that you. Nobody wanted either the Ashraf um, Ghani government or the mm -hmm. Taliban. Um, the Taliban, are, they've been killing people for 20 years. Nobody wanted them back. Um, uh, recruiting kiddies as suicide bombers and then sending them to, to, you know, sports events in the countryside to kill enormous numbers of people, um, digging up roads that were built. So just because it was foreign money that built them. And they are um, drugs traffickers. You know, in the revisionism that's happened since August, we seem to have forgotten that they are, the biggest drugs producing and trafficking gang in the world. They control the flow of heroin for the entire world um, and they make billions of dollars out of it. Uh, nobody wants them around. And, they, you know, the Western um, presence tried very hard as a, for instance, to promote saffron or wheat as alternatives to poppy. And um, the Taliban would come along with suicide bombers at wheat seed distribution centers. You know, nobody wants them. Um, their, their support base is in the South. They're essentially a Sunni Pashtun nationalist movement. And Afghanistan is a mosaic of many languages and many um, uh, different religions and ethnicities. And the Taliban are not a, a movement for all. They are um, repressive, they're liars, as I said, drug dealers. And, and at the moment there is, there's no rule of law, there's no security, they cannot provide any governance. And they are really just um, making people hate them more. It's repressive, it's a, it's a, it's a tyranny of, of, of fear and silence. Yeah. yeah. So um, how were they I mean, able to do it? They were able to do it because the corruption was such that even though America spent more than $80 billion trying to build a, um, a, um, a, a security for army, uh, armed police, special forces, um, people came along and stole the equipment and the money didn't get to the soldiers. I spent a lot of time on front lines with young guys who were amongst the bravest people I've ever met. They didn't want to give up, but they were, they were betrayed. Um, I met guys who didn't have, um, they had to buy their own uniforms. They didn't have food. You know, they didn't, mm. they didn't have enough food and yet they stayed on the front lines and they fought their place. Um, it was just a, a, a filthy, corrupt, dysfunctional mess. And that's, I mean, and that's very much against the narrative as well, isn't it, that the, that the Afghan army just gave up um, once the, uh, once the, um, NATO and uh, and America sort of withdrew. Um, I mean, you, obviously, you say the Talib the Taliban are, are, are not for everybody. And before we talk more specifically about what happened to you, then you all also your piece in the New European is is accompanied by a very moving, very shocking piece from a a woman from Kabul talking about her daily life before and after the the Taliban. What what is what was life like then for for ordinary women before 
the return of the Taliban and what is it like now? Um, it was never good. Um, Afghanistan was consistently rated as one of the worst places in the world to be born female. Um, women um, outside of the cities were um, very much second-class citizens. Often they were um, uh, regarded really as, as chattel. Um, they would be used to pay gambling debts or to buy opium or, um, you know, I, I visited a hospital in Herat some years ago where um, girls were brought in with burns all over their bodies because in desperation they poured diesel oil over themselves and set themselves alight. And the only part of their body that didn't have burns was the arm, um, uh, usually their right arm, that they held the diesel oil in to pour over themselves. I mean, that's about as desperate as you can get. Um, but on the other hand, um, uh, women were in many ways quoted into jobs, so um, a lot in government positions, but also um, educated women had worked in, for instance, the judiciary um, for decades. I know um, a woman who was uh, who worked as a um, like a secretary in the in the um, Ministry of Justice for thirty years. I have friends who are women who are lawyers and um, aspired to be judges and um, who started their own businesses. Um, so, and, and they were protected under the constitution. So after um, the Taliban were kicked out in 2001 and um, a new government was brought in and the democratic experiment began, um, Afghanistan had a constitution that uh, guaranteed the rights and equality of women and protected them from all sorts of violence, including domestic violence. It's only two generations. It takes a long time for this sort of um, mentality to change and, you know, seep into all corners of the of, of a culture. Um, but things were changing and uh, millions and millions of girls went to school and aspired to secondary education and tertiary education. They, they were able to get scholarships and go abroad and, and get degrees at you know, some of the best universities in the world and then come back and get jobs and and um, help build their country. A lot also got education and then got married and became, you know, mums at home. But there was hope and opportunity that no longer exists. Yes. And what's the, what age, what, what age are girls educated to now under the Taliban? Um, 11. Um, nobody talks about what the curriculum is. Um, but there is no secondary school um, education available to Afghan girls at all. And while they like to, you know, the Taliban um, uh, like to crow about uh, women it, uh, graduating from university, um, if they can't go to secondary school, they're not going to be able to go to university. And then there's all the corollary of that, um, women doctors. Uh, the Taliban are so rabid in their misogyny that they're starting to cut women out of healthcare if the doctor is a man. Um, if you have no women graduating from secondary school into, um, into university, then you have no women um, who will become doctors. Um, there are no women. One of my lawyer friends was a specialist in representing women who were um, uh, victims um, of uh, gender-based violence, uh, you know, taking their husbands to court, for instance, or, or divorcing them for, um, for being maltreated in the home. 
that's not going to exist either. So women are basically being disappeared from Afghan society. It's quite incredible. Now, obviously, you attempted to return or you did return um, uh, not, not so long ago. Um, what were the what were the, the sort of the visible signs of, of change when you when you went back? Well, it was almost immediate, Steve. As soon as I came out of the airport very early on the morning of the 17th of July, there's the, the Taliban, the white Taliban flag with the Arabic writing exhortations to Allah on it fluttering outside. The flags were everywhere, but also hardly any traffic and not very many people around at all. So that was the first thing I noticed. Um, the cars, you know, the Taliban have been stealing people's privately owned cars. So that was one reason for there being hardly any traffic. There's nowhere to go. There's no commercial activity. Um, you know, businesses are struggling because there's no money. People can't access their own money. With no jobs, with no economic activity, people just don't have disposable income generally. Um, the bakeries. Now, the bakeries... I think I've written in my piece that they're these little points of joy on every on every street corner, like a little hut, and there's guys who live in them, and they're the bakers, and they spend all day and, and all of the evening baking bread. They smell divine, and people would go and get these big discs of bread that costs 10 Afghanis. Afghani is the, um, is the currency. And they'd take them home um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and... Um, it was just this, people used to gather there and, you know, there was always a couple of beggars around some of them. Now you get the same amount of, um, it, it, the bread costs the same, but it's about the third of a size that it was a year ago because there's just no money and the flour is too expensive. And a friend of mine told me that he installed an oven. He had some resources. Last year he installed a tandoor to make his own bread and buy flour instead of going to the baker because he was attacked in the street for the bread. There's women um, in the all-covering blue burqa sitting in, under trees near the bakeries waiting for people to give them bread. And whereas the bread used to be stacked up and displayed through the, the windows of these little bakery huts. There's not much bread on display anymore for two reasons. There's not that much being sold because people can't afford it. And um, uh, th so there's no point in making it, but also, you know, showing it off is, is, is a little bit um, cruel under the current circumstances. Um, uh, there was a lot of construction going on under the Republic government because people did have access to money. Uh, corrupt or otherwise, and uh, none of that's going on. There was one construction site in the area where I was staying um, and hundreds and hundreds of men would um, line up, queue up outside it all day, every day, waiting for some um, opportunity for, for some labouring. Um, overall, it's, it's pretty miserable. Nobody's smiling. People would spontaneously tell me just how awful it is um, the cafes and restaurants are still open, but not a lot of custom. Um, yeah, there's not a lot going on there, Steve. It was a pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. For myself. And and obviously the burqa are a lot more visible, and we've seen uh, we've we've seen video and images of you know beauty parlors advertisements showing women that have been defaced or covered yeah. over in in some way. But ironically, with the beauty parlors. 
Taliban have come in and they've come in and they have this impunity about them. It, it emanates from them. What they're doing in many parts of the country, I hear anecdotally, but also it's been uh, documented by some human rights organisations and the UN um, office that's present in Kabul, um, they're taking second, third and fourth wives. And um, whereas uh, if you were getting ready for your wedding, you would go to a beauty parlour and spend maybe 40,000 AFs, about $8,000, um, getting yourself ready with your nails and your makeup and your hair and all your girlfriends. Um, now the, these guys are spending 100,000 AFs to get their brides, their young brides that they're, you know, stealing. Um, ready for their for their weddings and so one woman that I know of uh, thought that everything would be over for her beauty parlor business and now she's doing amazing business because you know the Taliban people are um are taking multiple wives now I mean you were you were in well you you returned you had a valid visa you had uh, and you but you had to go to the ministry to to register as a foreign correspondent uh just talk us through the next couple of days then I know a lot of this is covered in the piece so I, I don't do, I do want people to read it but but what's a what's a what's a flavor of what they can expect uh well I was um I, I did the right thing. As you said, I had a valid visa. I registered as I came into the airport, which you have to do as a foreign visitor. And then I went to the foreign ministry and I saw a man who calls himself Abdul Kaha Bolki. That's not his name. His name is um, Hassan Basith. He's a New Zealand passport holder, a New Zealand citizen. He has um, family living free in Hamilton, a city in New Zealand. And um, I went to see him. He kept me waiting for quite some time. Um, sat in his office and he immediately started abusing me. He told me um, that I'm not a um, I'm not a journalist. Uh, that the intelligence agency would not recognise me as a journalist. That um, I'm a white supremacist colonialist. Uh, that I make up all my stories. Um, two stories in particular um, had struck the Taliban. Um, one that was published in July last year about uh, forced marriages, which is sex slavery, which I called it because um, that's what it is. And another about um, LGBTQ people um, living in terror of being um, uh, found because they will be killed. He reminded me of a suicide attack against a bus load of employees who worked for um, a television station called Tolo News, which was funded by um, us taxpayers. Um, and it did very well. It was quite popular. But during the siege of, of a city up north called Kunduz in 2016, the reporter made a, a very bad mistake in a live report um, about Taliban activity up there. And he didn't correct it. And I talked to, I talked later to the manager, um, owner of this station, whose name is Saad Mosseini, um, who likes to think of himself as the Rupert Murdoch of Afghanistan. And I asked him why there had been no uh, retraction or correction as news organisations all over the world do. And um, he, um, he just blustered. There was no real reason for it. He said that they had not mentioned it again and that was good enough for him but it wasn't good enough for the Taliban. They demanded a retraction and a correction over the ensuing months because it was a pretty bad mistake that, that this 
reporter had made. They started to stake out the TV station headquarters in Kabul and staff started to beg management to send them home in taxis instead of the staff buses, which they refused to do because Saad Mosseini is all about money. Um, and so one day in um, the middle of, of uh, 2016, the Taliban sent a suicide bomber against this bus as it was taking employees home and killed on the spot seven people, probably more later died of their injuries. So Bulky, as he calls himself, uh, told me this by way of threatening me. This is what we do to people who uh, write fake news, false accounts. I said, um, you killed, um, and he said, you know, this is what we did and, 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 and we're proud of it. I said, you killed a lot of innocent people that day. He said, and we're proud of it. And I said, um, one of the people that you killed was a friend of mine. He said, and we're proud of that. So this is how he was threatening my life and also claiming, you know, responsibility for um, the bus attack to my face. Um, he told me that the intelligence agency would request my departure. They'll ask you to leave the country. So um, later on, um, the intelligence agency, a guy called Ahmad Zahil contacted me, demanding that I have a face-to-face -face meeting in his office to discuss my crimes. Um, the next, I, I booked a flight to leave. I thought, you know, there's no point in me, you know, dragging this out. They're gonna ask me to leave. So I booked a flight to Islamabad for the, um, uh, uh, the 20th, which was the Wednesday. I'd arrived on the Sunday. Um, he called me up and he said, um, you have to come and have this meeting. I said, well, we're on the phone now. Can we just discuss my crimes on the phone? And he said, no, we have to have this meeting. And if we don't, I'm going to order all the border um, points of the country um, not to allow you to leave the country. I have that on text. I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to get away with not having this meeting to discuss my crimes. And so I set up a WhatsApp group with um, Australian uh, diplomats. I'm, I'm British and Australian and Irish, but the Australians responded very quickly. Um, uh, the, uh, they set up um, a WhatsApp group with live location tracking and um, included my friend uh, Masoud Hosseini, who um, basically we're a team. We work together and have known each other for a very long time. He's now in New Zealand. And so um, I asked these guys to come to my guest house. They came, um, they, uh, in this very sort of Kafkaesque way, they said that I knew what my crimes are. They'd look at each other and jut their chins out and say, she knows her crimes. And they took me um, with a gunman uh, to uh, the headquarters of what used to be called the uh, National Directorate of Security. It's now the GDI General Directorate of Security, I think, or yeah, Intelligence. And they kept me there for four or five hours, shouting at me, abusing me, um, pointing out particular stories, the one I just said about sex slavery, the one about LGBTQ people, told me that none of these people existed, that I'd made them up. Um, why do you call us extremists? I said, well, you know, you're saying that there's you know, no such thing as, you know, there's no gays in Afghanistan is a pretty extreme um, position to take. And Mr. Zahil has just said that if he finds anyone is gay, he will kill them. I think extremist is a good way to, to describe that. Um, why do you call us terrorists? So, uh, you know, two, four dozen of your leaders are actually sanctioned by the UN Security Council as 
terrorists. I said, I don't make any of this stuff up. In one story that you, 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 you're angry about, all the people are on the record and they're named. You do your job, you know, you, you verify it. Eventually I said, look, you know, how's this going to end? They said, um, you have to say sorry. I said, okay, sorry. I said, no, not like that. I said, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm really very, very sorry. No, it has to be public. And so um, they meant that I had to use my Twitter feed to uh, tweet to my however many followers that I had made all of this stuff up. So I got a pen and paper and I allowed them to dictate to me what it was that they wanted. There's lots of other funny details in this very sort of like dark satirical situation. There's, I mean, there's a there's a darkly comic element to this, isn't there? Yeah, if I was going to write an HBO series about, you know, a dysfunctional um, intelligence agency in a screwed up country run by idiots, then this would be it. But um, that's not to say that at all times I was very aware that I was in a completely unpredictable and very dangerous situation because the Taliban have a history of taking foreigners hostage and holding them for leverage. And they had just a, a little while earlier released, you know, half a dozen Brits and um, who they had held for trying to get leverage for the release of um, their own people. Uh, they've got a drug dealer and financier doing uh, life in a New York prison. They'd like him out. Um, so, yeah, I knew that I didn't know that I wasn't going to end up in a, in a hole in the ground. And they did tell me and stood around me when they told me that if I didn't make this public confession that I would go to jail whatever it takes, right? Ooh. So they dictated this um, uh, uh, tweet. Um, I, I typed it onto my feed. One of them broke it into a two-tweet um, uh, thread and then sent it. And I said to them, look, guys, you know, in all sincerity, um, I'm being totally honest here, if you make me do this, you're going to look silly. And they had a bit of a debate about the meaning of the word silly and then decided that they wouldn't. And so they made me do it. I said, okay. And they've got their boss, who I think was, um, uh, I think he's one of the senior spokespeople for the um, spokesman for the for the Taliban on the phone, tried to tell me he was a woman and then five minutes later had him on speakerphone. I mean, really. Um, he didn't like the first tweet, so they made me delete it and do it again. I, don't, I can't even remember what, what it was that they wanted to edit. I've got both versions and they don't look too different to me. So off that went and I said, okay, um, now what? Will you take me back to my guest house? By this time, Mr. Zaheel is lying on a sofa going, oh, you wouldn't believe the pressure that I'm under. I'm like, okay, mate. <laughs> now what you have to do is we have to video a confession. So um, they move the furniture around. They've got this young guy called um, Feeder and he's got this whiz-bang phone and so he starts to record. I said, what is it? Well, you know, I straightened out, you know, I've got a full length chador on, I've got my hijab on. And I said, do I need any lipstick on? How do I look? You know, they're like, you look fine. <laughs> so he turns his phone on. They tell me what I need to say. I said, my name's Lynn O'Donnell and I'm a journalist and I don't know anything about Afghan people or Afghan culture. And I make up all of my stories and none of my sources exist. And then I took my headscarf off and I wound it around my neck and I held it up as a noose and I said, and I haven't been coerced into making this confession. And they looked at me and they looked at each other and we all burst out laughing. 
they said, you better do that again. <laughs> Without so, the end bit. Well, yeah, and then I did it again and I laughed all the way through it thinking we're going to have a take three here, but no, we didn't. And then they promised me that they'd send the video, but they haven't. And then they, they took me back to my guest house and people came out onto the lawn of this compound we're in to wave me off. I waved. I said, bye, thanks for having me. <laughs> I said, this is what you call Stockholm Syndrome. One of them goes, what? I said, look it up. <laughs> and then they took me back to my guest house. They made me wait outside the gate with a gunman while the, while the manager came. I went inside while they threatened the manager, we can close you down any time. They had in the meantime uh, detained my driver. They kept him for three days. They tortured him. They deprived him of sleep and they kept his phone and his car. They visited some people. By the time they'd locked onto my phone, I was visiting, you know, and started monitoring my movements. I was visiting some people who they visited, detained, uh, threatened, and uh, inter interrogated. And um, and then after I had left, I, I sent a tweet as soon as I, I went dark on social media and everything for 24 hours until I left and landed in Islamabad. And then I sent a tweet so that people knew that I was out. People knew immediately, as I told them, those tweets hit my Twitter feed that they weren't from me. So the place was going nuts. The world was going nuts. It was really quite amazing and very, very touching that people noticed me, noticed something was wrong and, and were very concerned about my well-being. Um, and then uh, this guy who calls himself Bulky, that's not his real name, the New Zealand citizen, um, tweeted that I had um, uh, come into the country voluntarily that I'd left voluntarily, um, that I had um, made a confession that I make up my stories and that I had, and this was true, been told that I could stay if I wanted to. And that's what they said to me. You can stay if you want to. Can we help you with any of your stories? Until I said what stories I wanted to do and that wasn't on. Within two days, the guy who was the, who was the head spokesman, he's since been sacked. I'd like to claim responsibility for that, but I don't <laughs> doubt it. Um, his name, he calls himself Zabiola Mujahid. He tweeted that I was a spy, that I had snuck into the country, masquerading as a journalist, that I had gone into hiding, that I'd been hunted down and found and I'd been expelled from the country and would never be allowed to return, all of which was a lie, but all of which gives them carte blanche to say that anybody that I met with was also a spy. Um, very, very dangerous. And so the whole operation told me that um, their, their only authority comes from violence and threats. And it's, it is, as people spontaneously, including somebody who used to be very senior in the government who I had a long meeting with, um, spontaneously called it a reign of terror. And, and what they mean by that is that nobody knows, because there's no law, Nobody knows what the law is. What can you do? What's allowed? Who can you meet with? Where can you go? They're setting up a neighbourhood watch style system where people are telling on each other. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very dangerous situation. The fact is that if I wasn't who I am, quite high profile in what I do, um, you know, well known, all of that, and, and had um, uh, immediately um, people were alerted to I was either... Um, being forced to make false confessions or the Taliban had taken over my Twitter feed or something was wrong, 
if I was Afghan, I, I'd be dead. Mm. I'd be in prison. And, you know, my family would be trying to leave the country out of, you know, fear because it's not just one person who is targeted. It's the entire family, um, uh, uh, extended family, who who is um, painted with the sins of, of one person. Journalists have been detained held incommunicado, beaten up, electrocuted if they're women, probably men also, raped, beheaded, murdered. They, you know, there were hundreds of them in, in hiding in Afghanistan and who fled over the border to Pakistan. It's it, What they did was give me a platform to be able to tell people what it's really like, what they really do to people, to their perceived enemies. It's, it's terrifying. And it's not only women who are having a hard time, it's a terrible, terrible place for women. It's anybody who was worked for the former government, was in the security forces, in the police, um, is uh, is not a Sunni Pashtun. For instance, is Tajik, especially from Panjshir, where there is, there is a major armed resistance going on. Hazara, because they are a different ethnicity. Um, uh, um, and they're Shia, so they're apostate. It's anybody for any reason, with total impunity. And the world lets this happen. And I was, that was where I was going to end, because, I mean, clearly you won't be going back to Afghanistan anytime soon. And, you know, despite the insurgency that you've just been talking about, it, it doesn't look like the Taliban will be removed any anytime soon. What's the, what's the future, the short term, you know, and I say short term, the next five or 10 years, what does that look like for Afghanistan? Oh, to be honest with you, Steve, I don't think they'll last for five or 10 years. On the 31st of July, we saw the head of Al-Qaeda, um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, killed by a US drone strike in the villa um, he was living in, in downtown Kabul. The mm. villa is owned by um, the current uh, acting interior minister, whose name is Sarajuddin Haqqani. Um, a really bad man by any stretch of the imagination and also a UNSC-sanctioned uh, terrorist in his own right. Um, I've been writing for a very long time, mostly for Foreign Policy magazine, about how Afghanistan has now become the um, geopolitical containment zone, if you like, for the world's terrorists and jihadist organisations. The Taliban are giving them a big thank you for fighting alongside us for nearly 20 years by giving them safe haven in the same way that the Pakistani authorities gave them safe haven in Afghanistan, they, um, in Pakistan. They provided them with a place to live, money, arms, support, intelligence, and they sucked little boys out of madrasas all along that eastern border point, uh, border um, area. Um, as uh, cannon fodder for, for the, the Taliban. Um, so now um, the Taliban are getting their own back. They're um, also harboring the Pakistani Taliban who are um, an anti-state, anti-Pakistan organization. Pakistanis have even sent you know, um, airstrikes against them, against their positions. So what we're seeing now is the Taliban very assiduously using the presence of ISIS the local franchise is called ISIS Khorasan Province, ISK, um, to try and hoodwink the United States and the Western community into um, believing that they are cooperating on counterintelligence. They're not. Um, the uh, discovery and killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri shows us just 
who they are, but it's also caused huge, it, it's made public these rifts within the Taliban themselves. They're fighting like cats in a bag. Mm. Now we know and can see the fighting um, and I think that they will um, ultimately destroy themselves um, from within. And that's aside from the fact that people are starving to death. There'll be, will there be food riots? I would imagine that, that it can't last too long, that people will suffer the indignity of having no work, no money and no food for their families. Um, uh, economic implosion. I think we've got to get the UN out of there because they are basically enabling the um, enabling the Taliban. 20 to as high as 50, I've heard in some instances, percent of what we send in there as taxpayers is going to the Taliban because the UN are cooperating with them as well. So there's got to be a, a complete rethink about how we are dealing with as the international community um, what is essentially a drug, a, a collection of, of drug dealing terrorists who are committing egregious human rights violations with impunity. Now, on the books in our countries, um, in America, Australia, New Zealand, many European countries, the United Kingdom, Kingdom there are Magnitsky-style laws that allow the sanctioning of named officials of any country in the world who are human rights abusers. It enables the freezing of their assets and the banning of their travel to our countries. I think it's about time that human rights organisations stopped competing in their reports you know they're always making these reports about how awful it is let's start using um, human rights lawyers people who know this landscape and naming names and putting these guys on sanctions lists um, that are you know that are available to us in our countries let's make it hurt let's show them that there are consequences for these actions because so far they're getting away with it Amen to that. That's absolutely superb. Lynn O'Donnell, thank you so much. What thank a great, you. Uh, what a great piece it is, uh, and what great, uh, what great interview that's been. Um, you could read Lynn in issue three hundred five of the New European uh, on sale now, uh, or you can join us by subscribing at the New slash tne podcast. Thank you. And finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, the home of blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, piss-poor pundits, things that get my goat generally. Uh, Grant Shapps is in the Hall of Shame, Transport Secretary, who doesn't know what a direct train is. Uh, asked on BBC Breakfast how many direct trains were currently running from London to Manchester per hour, Grant Shapps, Transport Secretary, said there were four. Uh, told that that wasn't true and that there were now just one an hour because of staffing issues. Uh, Grant Shapps asked whether the interviewer meant that that was one train an hour that ran straight from London to Manchester without stopping. And he said, I'm not sure what definition you're using of direct train. So let me be direct about this. Grant Shapps is a half-wit and the definition I'm using is a female-minded person or a foolish or inane person, a fool, a jerk, an idiot, a plank, a prat, a plonker, a moron, a twitter, dunce, imbecile, an oaf, a simpleton, an airhead, a dullard, a dimwit, a dipstick, a dickhead, a nitwit, a dolt, a divvy, a pillock, a numpty, or a numbskull. That's Grant Shapps. 
And Widdicombe is back in the Hall of Shame in a desperately bad column for the desperately bad Daily Express. And Widdicombe writes, with the cost of living rising every time we pass a shop window and donations to food banks drying up, the government is being urged to start handing out food parcels. Please don't do that, dear whoever the Prime Minister may be, because once you've created a benefit, it will be impossible to stop it. Grants to local charities are fine, but physically feeding individuals will store up trouble. Quite the take from Antoinette Widdicombe there, isn't it? It's not so much let them eat cake as let them eat nothing, because uh, physically feeding people will only store up trouble. Jacob Rees-Mogg is in the Hall of Shame. He's being tipped to become Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities uh, when Liz Truss becomes Prime Minister. Community is obviously something that Jacob Rees-Mogg knows a lot about, and he's a real housing expert too. He supported the bedroom tax. He's consistently voted for phasing out secure tenancies for life. Uh, and of course, if he does become Housing Secretary, he'll be in charge of what happens to Grenfell Tower. Uh, of whose former inhabitants. Uh, he once said, if I was in a fire, whatever the fire brigade said, I would leave the burning building. It just seems the common sense thing to do. But foremost in the Hall of Shame is Britain's next Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Uh, I mean, for all the reasons we discussed at the start of this podcast, uh, but particularly amazing was the comment about GB News. It's not the BBC, you know, she said, you actually get your facts right. Uh, that's GB News getting their facts right. Um, GB News, which employs Neil Oliver, who says the COVID vaccine is actually the so-called COVID vaccine uh, and who believes there's a conspiracy to crash planes into food processing plants while Bill Gates promotes what Neil Oliver calls fake meat. Uh, GB News getting their facts right. Uh, GB News announced that steam trains were being cancelled by woke snowflakes. Uh, and what, in fact, that turned out to mean was that the National Museum of Wales, uh, which had a steam train on display, was thinking about putting a sign up next to it that talked about the use of enslaved people to build railways. Uh, and GB News, who get their facts right, unlike the BBC, uh, a home said Dan Wotton, uh, an idiot looking for his village. And Dan Wotton recently told viewers, uh, there's no spin, no bias on our show. Coming up, Stanley Johnson live in the studio. No spin, no bias. Just the Prime Minister's father uh, telling everyone how awful it is that the Prime Minister will soon no longer be the Prime Minister. Uh, that is what Liz Truss thinks good broadcasting and getting your facts right looks like. Um, I would be tempted to say that with Boris Johnson about to go, things can only get better, but actually things could get even worse. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Lynn and thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers if you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just a pound a week for digital, two pounds a week for print and digital, the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast is the place to go. If you don't want to miss an episode of our podcast, please subscribe. You can give us nice ratings and lovely reviews too, wherever you can. Join our Facebook readers group. Or follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. 
until the next time we meet. So long, snowflakes. <laughs>